welcome to the COG podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Quality of Government Institute at the University of Gothenburg, where we have conversations with well-known experts to try to make sense of politics and governments all over the world. Hosting this show is Professor Victor La Puente. In today's episode, we have professor and bestseller author James Robinson, who will talk about some of the big questions in social sciences. Why some nations fail and others succeed? What is the secret of economic and democratic prosperity? Thanks to the encyclopedic knowledge of James Robinson, we will be traveling through different time periods and geographics, searching for the holy grail of progress. I don't want to give away any spoilers, but the message of hope for humankind that Robinson gives us in this podcast about the balance between power of civil society and of government is both simple and counterintuitive, very old and very fresh. We hope you enjoy it. It's a great pleasure to have in our podcast James Robinson, professor at the Harris School of Public Policy of the University of Chicago and director of the Pearson Institute of the Study Resolution of Global Conflicts. He's one of the most influential social scientists of our time. Just as curiosity, he has over 95,000 Google Scholar citations with very original and pioneering works on the importance of institutions for long-term economic development, but his impact goes beyond the certainly narrow ivory tower of the academia. And together with Darren Atsemoglu, James is the author of the 2012 bestseller, Why Nations Fail, where they popularized the simple and powerful idea that the progress of nations depends on having inclusive institutions and not extractive ones. And in 2020, they were back with another grand book, The Narrow Corridor, State, Societies, and the Fate of Liberty. And I agree with several observers like Martin Wolf that this book, The Narrow Corridor, is more original and exciting, if any, than its predecessor. I think it's impossible to find a wider book than The Narrow Corridor, and it covers the fate of liberty or the lack of from the Bronze Age until the current crisis of uh, democracies. The book deals with the fundamental paradox of politics of who shall guard the guardian, who is custodiet ipsos custodes, or uh, as it is stated in the Federalist Papers, in framing a government which is to be administered by men over men. The great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. And then, unlike many other scholars, and maybe unlike your own previous work, James, you argue that who needs to control government is not another public institution, the judiciary, a system of separation of powers, but the society. And uh, welcome to our podcast, uh, James. And the first question is about this precisely, about the proper role of the society and of government, the balance between them for the prosperity of a nation. So what is the narrow corridor? Yeah, it's the place where the state and society are balanced in some sense. I mean, I think what we try to do in that book is sort of say, you can classify polities in some sense in, in terms of the balance between the state and the society. You know, in some places, it's very clear that the state dominates the society, like China, for example, or Russia. And in some cases, it's very clear it's the other way around. Those are places that are much less studied by social scientists, but nevertheless, they're there. Yemen be a great example, be a great instance. And many places in sub-Saharan Africa where I've worked, the society is more powerful than the state. 
And it's interesting that it's in the middle somehow. So, so, so the book is about how actually this balance, it get, neither of those two types of societies do very well. China doesn't do very well. Yemen doesn't do very well. They have different strengths and weaknesses. But it's in the middle where society and state is balanced that somehow you get a very synergetic type of relationship between state and society. And it's that which creates a place like Sweden or Britain or the United States. It's actually that balance between the people and the mobilization and the participation of the people and the state. Your quote from the Federalist Papers was very apposite, because that's, that's sort of exactly what it's about. But unlike James Madison, we don't think that this can be achieved through constitutional design. It's not an engineering problem. It's a kind of political problem. Society has to be mobilized and stay mobilized. You know, here's a very contemporary example. If you look at what happened in Sudan, why was there a transition in Sudan away from Bashir's dictatorship? Because society got mobilized, society got organized, and it protested. And, and how has the military been able to come back? Because society couldn't sustain that mobilization, because they decided the governor, government of technocrats was going to be the right solution for the transition, and society dissipated. And so the military can come back. There's an example of how you have to have this balance going if you want to create an inclusive society. These days, actually, we are seeing a narrow corridor in Ukraine disappearing through the advance of the Russian tanks. And also in Russia, we saw the emergence of a terribly effective despotic state after the collapse of the Soviet Union built around this despot Putin, a former KGB agent. You describe it very well in the book actually fantastically well. And then you claim that the society in Russia maybe was not strong enough to counterbalance that uh, raising power of uh, Putin, unlike, for example, what happened in Poland, where the opposition to the, to the Soviet Union was more bottom-up, were more based on social mobilization. So I think that's a very good point, but I would like to ask you, what about the international factors that also play, may play a role now in Ukraine? What about the role of, for example, the European Union? If we see the development of uh, GDP be, uh, of Ukraine and Poland was pretty similar at the fall of the Berlin Wall, but then a few years afterwards was triple in the case of Poland. And it was because it was closer to the West. It was the influence of the European Union, the agreements, and eventually the entry of the European Union. So in some way, with uh, the international factors are a bit absent in your explanation for prosperity of nations, mostly based on domestic factors, the power of the state and the society. So which is the role of international factors? Don't you think that international factors play a role and eventually could play a role in Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're right. That's exactly what we, we make this argument in the book about that Russia, the Russian transition was there was never mass participation by civil society. In Poland, you had solidarity, you know, you had this enormous upsurge that toppled the communist regime. So, so that's a very different initial condition in some sense. But obviously, the European Union played a very important role in making institutions more inclusive all over former Soviet Union uh, countries in Eastern Europe. I mean, I think the book is not about why. Russia invaded Poland. I think that Poland was on the same track as, as, as Eastern Europe. There'd been this orange revolution, and you know, there was a real kind of overthrow of this crony oligarch-led government, which had been there after 1990. And that's why Putin has done this now, because now there's a government which is not corrupt, which is really popular, 
which can't be controlled in the way he wants to. He can't turn it into a satellite state. And so that's somehow deeply threatening to the way he runs Russia. So I, that's a sort of set of mechanisms which is a bit outside the scope of the book. I would say international politics in our world matters at some key moments. We spend a lot of time talking and doing research on colonialism and the impact of colonialism. So here, this is, I guess, what's Russia doing is a type of colonialism in some sense. The whole of Central Asia was colonized by, most of Central Asia was colonized by Russia in the 19th century during the Soviet period. So I don't know if we could think about this in terms of the, the way we think of the impact of colonialism on institutions. You know, colonial powers like my own country, Britain, created extractive institutions all over the world. And in some contingent circumstances, like in North America, relatively inclusive institutions emerged or in Australasia. But that's an example of kind of international politics in some sense, influencing institutions. But I guess that whenever I've studied the history of a particular society or a particular part of the world, I've always been kind of overcome by the sense that it's the sort of domestic political dynamics that are the most important. That, and that's true whether you look at Latin America, you know, I've been studying, working in Colombia for almost 30 years or in West Africa, you know, it's remarkable the extent of persistence of African political culture and African institution. And so, so I, I'm just trying to explain the way, the why I think like I do, because whenever I got into one case in detail, and learned about the history and the society, it was always these internal factors that dominated things. But that's not to say the world doesn't repeat itself. The European Union is a kind of fantastic innovation, and we need a lot more like that. And so far, the only thing good which is coming out of this whole invasion is the European Union may recover a sense of its mission and identity, and that would be fabulous. It seems that that could be the case, truly. Another uh, original idea of, of your book is this, uh, what you call the Red Queen effect in honor of the character of Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland. And it refers to the fact that you have to keep on running just to maintain your position. In this case, the ones who need to be running are the state and, and the society. Uh, can you explain us a little bit what you mean by that and how that could apply for exactly for what you were mentioning now, cases like the European Union or, or many Western countries where we have Many people could claim oversized states with, uh, I mean, even in the U.S. that there is not a huge welfare state, uh, there is a debt of $30 trillion. So, so how can the society keep up with those states? I think that has to be, it's the institutionalization of that, which, which is key. I think if you go back to this, the image I had of this balance between the state and society, you know, and I, I said, when you get this balance, then... There's a sort of synergetic relationship appears, and that's what we call the Red Queen effect. And the idea is that the state is trying to control society and govern society, but society is trying to control the state too and make sure it works in its interest, in the collective interest. So that's a kind of game. And in that game, state and society both get stronger. They develop capacity. They organize. And it's that which kind of creates modern inclusive societies. When you topple over one way or the other, then you don't get that competition. And so China dominates the society. Obviously, that makes it very difficult for society to do anything. But the insight here is that that keeps the state weak as well, because the state doesn't have to compete to control society. It's very easy to control society. 
So that actually has important consequences for the nature of the Chinese or the Russian state, for example. So that's the sort of the subtle aspect of it. I think, you know, you're asking a great question. And one of the things we try to talk about in the book when we look at kind of longer run history is how, how this competition sort of institutionalizes itself over time, that you need to kind of create institutions to sustain this mobilization, sustain social organization, find mechanisms of accountability, kind of force the state to reveal information, force the, the state to concede rights and authority. And so, so I think that's, that's the key thing. If you look historically, it's the institutionalization of the way. It's very imperfect, that control, but it needs to be institutionalized. And, you know, some sense, modern mass democracy is a particular institutionalization of that conflict. But we trace the roots of that. They're much more historic than the emergence of mass democracy. I think one of the great contributions of your book that runs counter a lot of the things that are established, at least in political science, is this idea of the balance of power between the state of society. Because many people would claim exactly the opposite, that we need a time for the state, a time for a society. There should be a sequence. We need a past of a despotic Libyatan as a prerequisite for prosperity and democracy afterwards. And you contradict that view. For example, you talk in your book about how Prussia in the 18th century followed a despotic path and became what Hugh Elliot defined as a vast prison in the center of which appears the great keeper in the, in the care of his captives. Sure, but many people, at least in political science, would argue, but wasn't the merit-based bureaucracy that emerged in Prussia there precisely as a result of these military efforts with entry exams to join the army and eventually later the civil service, a, a kind of institutional prerequisite or institutional foundation that later on facilitated both economic development and, and democracy? And something similar, many people could argue of developmentalist dictatorship in the second half of the 20th century, both in East Asia or Southern Europe. So that is, maybe we need a despotic state. We don't need a narrow corridor. We don't need a balance. We need a despotic state first. Once we have a despotic state, afterwards we can have the luxury of democracy or something like that. Yeah, I don't think that's true at all. Many political, I mean, Samuel Huntington, I suppose, you know, that's kind of what Huntington thought. And many people thought that you have to create a state and then modernization creates democracy or something afterwards. You know, but I think that's nonsense. Like the data doesn't support modernization theory. And I think if you look at successful societies, that's actually not how they created. That's actually not how they created institutions. Did that help Russia? You know, in the 19th century, the Romanos created a kind of police state, the Oksana, which, which kept everybody under control, which was then a model for Lenin's police state and is now a model for Putin's police state. So where's the development or the modernization there? That's a sort of classic despotic leviathan, and it's very persistent. I think the Prussian case is sort of interesting, but I think the, the, the extent of bureaucratization of the Prussian state is wildly overemphasized. Now, if you read Hans Rosenberg's book about that, the Russian state was actually full of aristocrats and elites right the way up to the Nazi state. It was full of the von Hardenbergs and the Steins. and the, So there were big elements of patrimonialism in the Prussian state right up until its demise. And I would say it's the, yeah, Germany starts doing better in the 19th century, but that's the collapse of serfdom after the Battle of Jena. It's the kind of these sort of reforms that start, it's the 1848 revolution that brings kind of more mass suffrage and more. So from my perspective, what's the difference between Prussia and, 
And Russia, well, Russia was very far from the, the corridor in 1800, let's say. And Russia was much closer to it. The Enlightenment came to, to Prussia, and, and it didn't come to Russia. And maybe that explains a lot about Russians' attitude, Putin's attitudes towards people's rights and the legitimacy of people's participation in government. And Prussia was a weird mix of a kind of a place that was outside the Holy Roman Empire and a place that was inside the Holy Roman Empire, Brandenburg, which actually had all sorts of institute, historic institutions of representation and checks and balances. And those bounced back after 1806. So um, um, this is too many details. But I would say the story of Prussia actually is when that, that absolutist state kind of withers away after 1806, and you get all these other institutional dynamics that actually the place becomes much more successful. And the bit that becomes successful, of course, is the bit in the West rather than East, rather than the East, which was the more intensely feudal and uh, despotic. Let's continue precisely with this point of the of the Roman Empire, which I think is another original thesis on, on your book. You have an original hypothesis on, on the rise of Europe. I think few things have been more studied on why capitalism and eventually the Industrial Revolution took place in this particular corner of, of the world, which is Western Europe. Quite unlikely, we take into account that other parts of the world could be in principle in a relatively good position, and particularly China, according to Karl Marx, the three key inventions for the bourgeois society, gunpowder, the compass, and the printing press were invented in, in China. But, but you provide a quite novel explanation linking, let's say, the top-down legacy of the Roman Empire and the bottom-up legacy of the Northern European barbarians, let's if we can call it like that. Why, in your view, then capitalism and the bourgeois society took place in, in this part of Europe? We're trying to explain when we look, you know, after developing this tripart distinction between this balance of states and society, we, you know, we tried to ask a historical question, which is, why did parts of the world get into different places in this diagram, in some sense? Like, where do these historical balances of power come from? And the more we read, the more we thought, this is a very deep, Kind of historical question and the pivotal moment seems in Europe, as you say, seems to be this moment where these very participatory Germanic institutions, as described by Tacitus, get fused with late Roman state institutions and institutionalized. We make this point about how these participatory, these mechanisms of accountability get institutionalized in the Merovingian and Carolingian dynasties in France. And I think you thought about Europe, and you thought about like parliaments, where were the parliaments? Where were the, these representative institutions historically? It's actually all the places where the Carolingians got to. That's where they were. And I think that's not a coincidence. And that's the basis of this institutional dynamic, this red queen effect in the corridor. Of course, it plays out over a long period of time. There's feudalism in between. It takes a long time to get to a point where you can have something like the Industrial Revolution. But that's the kind of deep roots of the, of the institution. And then we, when we look at China, we sort of say, well, if you go back far enough in Chinese history, it's not that you don't see similar types of things, but then there's almost like an intellectual revolution in China. There's almost a model, I guess, which is outside the scope of our theory, at least for the moment. <laughs> there's this way, this way of organizing the state emerges uh, under these legalist philosophers, and that creates this very despotic uh, dynasty that's the Chinese model. And the Chinese model is enormously persistent. If you read 
Shang Yang, who was one of the kind of intellectual founders of this organization of Chinese society, he wrote about 100 years before the first dynasty. You know, if you read the, the parts of his writings that, have, that remain, it's a lot like the philosophy of the current communist state. We quote some of it. It's really extraordinary. So and that's just to say, small differences have enormous differences cumulatively. Like our view of the world is not, there's no reason why Western Europe kind of did what it did. There's no factor of geography or climate or people love all these deterministic theories, but everywhere I've worked in the world, they've always struck me as being completely implausible. It's the type of societies and institutions that people are build that determine the prosperity and the governance of, the, of, the, of their societies. And that often, those divergences are often rooted in pretty idiosyncratic factors historically. I agree, and I think you documented extraordinarily well in your book. Having said that, I would like also to say that it's, it's not coincidental either that the Merovingian and Carolingian were also Christian states uh, with their own political philosophers that emphasized the, the separation of the church and the state, for example, that the first uh, universities and centers of knowledge were created there. And I would say that there are numerous scholars from historians like Tom Holland, philosophers like uh, Larry Sidentop, economists like Jonathan Schultz, and evolutionary psychologists like uh, Joseph Henrich, that have been, from very different points of view and methodologies, recently advancing the hypothesis that religion or the Western church as an institution or Christianity with the values of equality for all individuals, men, men and women, and so on, was key for, for development. And I think your book, uh, God, is pretty absent. <laughs> Religion is pretty absent and, and Christianity is also pretty absent. What do you think about these, let's say, religion-inspired ex explanations? I would say the King Clovis, who started the Merovingian dynasty, converted to Christianity with, it, with his entire army. I would say that's all part of the late Roman state that he co-opted. He co-opted the church as well as kind of administrative institutions and lawyers. That was all part of the state institutions in the late Roman Empire. And so, yes, he did that. And I'm sure that helped him consolidate his authority. What's the role of religion more generally? I don't know. I think that hasn't been researched very well, in my opinion. The hypothesis that you're talking about, that this papal revolution in the Middle Ages destroyed kinship systems, and that what distinguishes Western society from large other parts of the world is you don't have these extended families and clans, and it's much more individualistic. But I think the fact of the matter is, no historian actually believes that these kinship systems existed in Europe in the Middle Ages. If you read the literature on Britain, it's absolutely clear that there was nothing there for the church to destroy. You don't have these kind of kinship systems that you see in sub-Saharan Africa or Afghanistan or New Guinea, they never existed to our knowledge. The German tribes were not organized like that. And certainly, you know, if you read Mott Bloch's book, Feudal Society, you can see that they didn't exist. So, so I don't know, whatever the church was supposed to have done, it didn't do that because they weren't there to start with. So I don't buy that hypothesis at all. But I, th I do think religion's obviously a big part of human society, more or less every human society. I think there's a lot of confusion about the facts in that literature. You know, let me give you one example. People say all sorts of completely erroneous things about African religion. If you study African religion, African religions are monotheistic absolutely everywhere. In Soto, in West Africa, it, they're monotheistic. They have a God, and they have a moral God also. God is moral. 
whether it's Chukwu in Igbo land or whatever. But in the data sets I see, it's endlessly miscoded. So I think like there's a lot of coding on the dependent variable there. You know Africans are poor and Africans, so Africans can't have monotheistic religions like us and they mustn't, the gods mustn't be moral. So that's another problem I have. Whenever I look at the data sets and I compare it to places I know, I think like, oh gosh. So I think the topic is really interesting. And I agree, if you, if you accuse me of having under-researched religion, I'd accept that. But I think I remain to be convinced. Okay, let's continue on this, but taking a, a broader perspective, not talking only about religion, but about culture or social norms. Many social scientists from, let's say, more conservative ones like uh, Robert Putnam, his study on the importance of social capital, to more liberal ones like uh, Bur Rothstein and Eleanor Ostrom on the importance of social trust and norms, all would agree that on the fact that the development of norms, in many cases, thick norms of helping others, paying taxes and so on, are essential for the development of a country. Then they can be related or not. Many people would claim to religious beliefs or not. But in the narrow corridor, you use this expression that I also think is quite original, at least I am not very used to, to read it, of the cage of norms. So you, you give a negative <laughs> kind of uh, connotation to the idea of norms. Now, for example, uh, to explain the problems of development in India, which is very clear with the caste system and so on. The question is, when do you think that these social norms stop being beneficial for a society and become a cage? when norms are a cage or, and when norms are a trampoline for, for prosperity. We made this particular point in the narrow corridor about how in these, in these societies, which don't have a very effective centralized states, often the society adapts to that by proliferating these norms, which kind of stabilize order and, and, and relationships. So that, that's what we call the cage of norms, because that's an impediment to kind of building a, a different sort of society and probably a, a society that works better for the people. I would say, you know, my, my answer might be a bit like my answer to on religion, which is, I think that I understand what you're saying. And I, but for every example people have, I can always think of a counterexample. If you want to be in a place with most associate, go, go talk of mentioning Robert Putnam's great, great book on Italy where he sort of points out that in the north of Italy, there's all this associational life and people interact, and then they trust each other, and that creates good governance. If you want to go to a place with really, really dense associational life, try going to an African village. Try going to a village in Nigeria or Sierra Leone. Like, there's so many ways in which society are organized as cross-cutting institutions and associations and societies and so that problem, that hypothesis has a problem generalizing outside of the context in which it was developed, I always think. Do I think culture is important? I think undeniably, one of the things when we talk about political transitions, or we talk about the development of modern state institutions in Britain, say in the 17th century, which is a big, big thing in both of our books, is it a coincidence that Hobbes wrote his famous book about the nature of the state, and Locke wrote his famous book about the governance of the state at the time of the Glorious Revolution, where Hobbes secularized the state and had this idea that this was a consequence of a social contract that people bought into rather than the divine right of kings. I think that was probably very powerful in giving people ways of thinking about society and reorganizing society in a more inclusive way. So I think there's a sort of co-evolution of political culture, you could say, in that context, and power relations. And you know, why haven't we written about that? Oh, gosh, you know, because there's only two of us. 
So I would say, however, that we've been thinking a lot about that. Don't expect anything on religion, but you might might expect to see something on political culture coming soon. Well, we will be really <laughs> eager to eager to to read it. An underlying assumption of your book is that the people, the masses, are wise, and where normally we read quite the opposite, in the sense that uh, you praise in the book a lot social mobilization. And you talk, for example, about the brave suffragettes that risked their lives for female suffrage. No doubt that that was truly heroism. But maybe there is also bad social activism. And what do you think about that? We see also in developed societies in the 60s and the 70s the, how many intellectuals were captive by red terrorism, red brigades, and, and these kind of things. And now there are movements to defund the police in the US or so on. And I don't know if they're going to be good for society or not. So do you have maybe a, a naive view of social mobilization or maybe you do expose rationalization of movements and forgetting that there have been many, many bad social mobilization? And, and, and I stop the parenthesis because I really think that your intuition of the, how wise the, the masses think it's more empirically correct that the people that uh, claim that are societies are fooled by populist leaders, for example, very, very quickly. I think that's just the price you have to pay for having an inclusive society. If you're going to create the space and opportunities for mobilization, then you're, you're bound to get pretty idiosyncratic, nutty things as well. Just look at religion. Just look at the types of religions that pop up, people with different types of beliefs or whatever, and the Mormons, you know, it's like somebody comes along, an entrepreneur, with an idea and sort of says, look at it, look at the world like this, or why don't you think of the world like this? And you can get adherence and it can even be incredibly successful. But I, so I think that's just the price you have to pay. But I think on average, I would say that this is a force that does create a much more inclusive society. And you just have to be prepared to put up with the types of things you're describing, the Red Brigade or the Father Mind or Faction or whatever. Yeah. In the Financial Times, there was an article a few years ago on which type of dystopia is more likely to happen. George Orwell's 1984, Big Brother is Watching, as you also cite in your book, when talking about China, a sort of digital dictatorship where you are get punished if you buy, for example, alcohol in, a, in the supermarket or so, or Aldous Huxley, Brave New World, that is, uh, we humans will be addicted to some sort of drug, enjoying individual pleasures let's say, connected to Facebook, uh, social media or virtual reality, politically asleep and non-mobilizing at the mercy of big corporations, big tech corporations. So what do you think is, what is the main challenge for the narrow corridor for the future? Digital uh, dictatorship by government or by big tech or corporations? Maybe you should invite a science fiction author onto your show. I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think Our picture of the world is that there's all this persistence. History doesn't end. I think we're seeing that right at this very moment. This idea of history end ending is a kind of very implausible idea. And it shows how confused we can get by present events. In 1990, somehow we, we extrapolated something completely erroneous into the future. And I think that's one of our points about China. Like Everyone looks at what's happened to China in the previous 10 years and assumes that's what's going to happen over the next 100 years. I think that's very foolish. So you have to look at the history. But the world also changes. Technology changes the way you're discussing and in, in such a way as to create very different futures, I guess you could say, potential futures. But I'm not sure 
I have anything intelligent to say about that. I think in the US, I mean, I tend to think that what's happening in the US is that there's all sorts of protests against what's happening. It's creating all sorts of alienation and marginalization in the society. And in some sense, that's what this whole Trump thing is about. I think the thing is confusing because, because Trump is so confusing. He's such a bundle of contradictions. But underneath it, there's a social rebellion against the way this society is organized, against this kind of meritocratic, so-called meritocratic system where merit is determined by Harvard and Princeton and Yale and this kind of all these billionaires and this idea, this rise of like free market philosophy where you get what you deserve, you know. So Musk deserves to be so rich and you deserve, you know, you don't deserve because you're just not a success. This kind of extremely patronizing system that you have in the United States. I think it's a big social rebellion against that. And it's just taking a very perverse form at the moment. But I think it will, I think ultimately it's actually going to be very healthy. How about that for a provocative conclusion? Because the type of reformism that's built into the Democratic Party, Hillary Clinton or whatever, is never going to change anything. And actually, I don't think it's targeted at the right thing either. People don't want handouts in this country. They want respect. They want their contribution to society to be recognized. They want dignity. And that's, that's not on the table yet. And of course, it won't be on the table from Donald Trump. But somehow he's managed to tap into that discontent in a way which is quite mysterious to many of us. I, you know, that, that's a hard question. I think no fiction writer could have replied better than you. <laughs> and then, James, just the final question, moving from the future to the present. In a thought-provoking work written with Aaron Achemoglu and Thierry Verdier, you claim that the Nordic-style capitalism may provide higher welfare, but in an interconnected world, it may be the cutthroat U.S. capitalism with its extant inequalities that makes possible the existence of more cuddly Nordic societies. So connecting this with your book, The Narrow Corridor, which type of state is, in your opinion, better for sustaining the narrow corridor? A Nordic European welfare state, like the one I am talking uh, to you now, Sweden, with high social protection, high taxes, or an Anglo-Saxon one? That's an academic article. We were trying to make a particular point that countries can't freely choose their institutions independent of other people's institutions, that there's a kind of world equilibrium, and there's all sorts of interconnections in terms of economic growth and things like that. So that paper was written in the wake of 2008, where we were at a conference actually in Prague, where everyone was saying the Anglo-Saxon model of capitalism is kind of intellectually bankrupt, and everybody should be adopting a social democratic welfare state. And then that's just kind of trying to pose an intellectual question, well, how, how free are we to just independently vary our institutions? And what are the consequences of that? That's an academic paper, thinking about one set of mechanisms. If I want to answer your question, I need to think about more mechanisms than just in that one kind of mathematical model. I think by world historical standards, Scandinavia might be the most successful societies ever created just in terms of average levels of welfare and public good provision and cooperation and accountability. So I think the Scandinavian experience is, is a kind of remarkable experience. You could say, well, okay, but you know, one of the points about that paper is everywhere can't be like Scandinavia. And that, maybe that's right. The United States is much more heterogeneous. The history of the United States is very different. There's this bitter 
history of slavery or frontier expansion of disposition of indigenous people that you don't have in Sweden. So maybe there's a sort of sociological challenge, which is more difficult. But on the other hand, if you go back and look at Sweden in the 1920s and 1930s, it wasn't so harmonious either. I would say there's a lot of contradictions and problems in the United States. Yes, it has been very technologically dynamic uh, for the past 100 years. And in some sense, the whole world has benefited from that. Well, the past 150 years, the whole world has benefited from that. But that's not to say that other societies couldn't be just as technologically developed. This is a long conversation. <laughs> that, that was a very specific kind of project where we were trying to illustrate a particular kind of intellectual point. And I, as I say, I think to evaluate which model of, I don't think you can freely choose your model of the world. That's the, that's the problem. It would be very difficult for the United States to turn itself into Sweden. I think it could turn itself into something much better than it is. But, and, but Sweden is definitely becoming more heterogeneous and that can be seen uh, as a bad thing or that can be seen as a, an opportunity as we can conclude for your, from your answer. Well, James, yeah. uh, we have to finish our conversation now. It has been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like it and subscribe to our channel.